Okay, here we go, here we go. Here we go, here we go. Great to see you back. Uh, it's good to, this is probably the most important thing we do, so we need to, yeah, we need to work at this and, and uh, sort of go forward. Here we go. Uh, I tell you, stand still where you are, let's pray, and then I'll chatter as you're handing stuff out. Grant us, O Lord, not to mind earthly things, but to love things heavenly. And while we now dwell among the things that are passing away, to cleave to those things that abide forever. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, now that's a bit of an odd prayer. I guess if we're going to talk about beauty, uh, whether we only think about heavenly things or whether we think about earthly things, and whether or not we want to make that kind of a distinction. Um, anybody at the women's thing yesterday? When, I came, when you came out of the women's thing, did it take you about an hour to get back to the main road? I'm just asking, because I just want to know if I turned the wrong way. Did it take you about an hour to get out the main road? As you were driving for that hour, did you notice how wonderful it was? I mean, was it just great? The sun was up, it was cool. There was actually, just until the end, there was nobody around me. There was just a few people, and it was, well, for lack of another word, beautiful. So Gainig says to one of his classmates, well, we're off to Scotland to do, go to a conference on beauty and evil. And then the guy writes back and says, that seems like a bit of a leisurely pursuit. Well, that was a bit sassy, I think. Uh, so then poor Pastor Gainig had to straighten him around. But um, it may seem, it might strike you as, as an odd pursuit, uh, the question of beauty. But, you know, let's indulge it at least for a few weeks and see what happens. Uh, for me, it's been popping up every Wednesday for four years. I've used and encouraged the staff to use unless they had something else they loved more, this minister's prayer book. And every Wednesday morning, if you use it, uh, the first reading is this one you see before you. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands, establish thou it. So there it is, right in the scripture. What would it mean for the beauty of the Lord our God to be upon us? What in the world could that possibly mean? And then I was struck again this week uh, in private absolution that the final words to private absolution go like this. This is when everything's been mopped up, you know, and everybody gets a fresh start. How great is this? Go in the strength, the peace, and the joy of the Lord. Go have some fun. You're strong again. Life's good. And come soon to receive Christ's body and blood. That'll be the best thing, right? And being joined to him so that, you, you know, actually you're joined to Christ. He joins himself to you with his body and his blood. He joins himself to you at his altar. He joins himself to you at baptism and with all the faithful. Being joined to him, live toward the work. Now that could just be sort of slavish carrying on. Get your nose back to the grindstone. But no, live toward the work and the beauty he would fulfill in you. You know, there's a couple of clues there. One is beauty is part of the forgiven life. And two is, it's the Lord who does the beauty in you. He says, so toward the beauty he would fulfill in you for himself and for others, go, you are free. And you recognize that as John chapter, um, uh, John chapter 8. He says that to the woman who's been caught in sin, go, you're free. And then again, and um, you know, there's always a practical consideration. I was reading you know, broadly stuff about stuff and there was a conference where one church described their mission this way. 
a mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Christ by creating irresistible environments. Now, there is a way that you can hear that in a bad way. I'm always suspicious of places where I go in that don't have any windows because I know it's just a couple of minutes before they dim the light and turn on the fog machine. No. So there is a way that you can create an environment that you can actually manipulate people. But I, there are also ways you can create an environment that's beautiful and that can cause you to think even when you are um, supposed to be doing something else. So at the altar this morning, I found myself thinking about how wonderful the purples are. There's that woman on the left, you know, three panes up. That's the most beautiful purple. And then farther up, there's a woman with a bag full of stuff in purple. And I thought to myself, what could possibly be in the bag? If you're going up to heaven, what is it that she's carrying with her? And then I had all kinds of speculations about what that might be. But, you see, that's a way that um, beautiful things sort of move you into closer to God and people around you. We'll meet that woman someday. We'll be able to ask her what's in the bag. I got an idea, but, you know, we shall see. So there is something about, and then there's the famous Gainigism. It's the viva vox, don't kill it. The viva vox is the living voice of Christ. And real honestly, one of, uh, here's a Lutheran faux pas. We have, I'm going to just explain a couple things. Traditionally, you'll notice that pastors, Lutheran pastors, don't pray when they come to the, to the pulpit. Now, occasionally you do, but that is foreign to our tradition. Particularly foreign to our tradition is when we pray, when a pastor would pray before he preaches, that the Spirit descend and enliven the words. No, no. The Spirit has already descended, and the words are already enlivened. It's the pastor's job to get out of the way, you know. So uh, if a pastor prays that way, it's just because he picked that up from one of his Reformed friends who, and he doesn't know any better, and you can only just say, well, hope he doesn't do that anymore. But here's a faux pas. Here's the other side of it. Uh, often you'll get Lutherans who will, um, pastors I'm talking about, who um, because they believe that the Spirit enlivens the Word, then they can do whatever they want. So it doesn't need to be crisp, it doesn't need to be on time, it doesn't need to be beautiful, it doesn't need to be irresistible. You just toss it out there um, and whatever happens, happens. It was a bit like how the sacraments were treated in the Middle Ages, this notion of ex opera operato. You just do it and it gets done. So you bring a kid to baptize him and you baptize him and you let him go and it doesn't make any difference. So you come to the supper and you're not repentant and you don't believe, but the Lord is doing something and so it all works out. Well, there's just something that's hinky about that. And the point of it is, and I was, you know, we were blessed again with the choir and, you know, moving things around. And we talk about, you know, we even have conversations about should the choir sit down here, should it sit up there? If they sit up there, we don't have a piano. If they sit down here, then the, the voices don't blend and sort of fall over the top of you and they don't push you toward the altar the way we traditionally like to do things. The point of all that is, is that part of the job of pastors and the staff is, in fact, to create an irresistible environment. And of course, you know, I mean, for us, the clock is ticking. A year from now, 
you know, there's every good chance that we're not standing here, we're standing over there. And we need to do something. Uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a blank slate, it's a big box. And so what will it look like? What is it that can be done? What beautiful thing can be done that pushes you toward Christ and his preaching, Christ and his baptism, Christ and his altar, Christ and his community? So it really matters how the chairs are put in. And it really matters whether you have three steps up to the altar. And it really matters where the choir is situated. And it really matters how you put in stained glass. It matters, it matters, it matters. And it matters in the way of beauty. Because what we do can either resist the word of God or accelerate it, prompt it, extol it, rejoice in it. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. Okay, so part of that means get out of the way, so don't hurt it. But it also means that you and I are meant to be in a place where we, if you will, accelerate it, extol it, rejoice in it. I mean, it's the reason today we'll put oil on this kid who comes for baptism and hand him a candle, dress him in a white robe, you know? Because those are things that say important things about what happens. You're the light of the world. You're Christed here, so we anoint them. You wear white, you know, You're, who are these people in heaven? They're people who wear white robes and have the name of Jesus on their forehead, Revelation 22, last chapter of scripture. So, um, and then this um, last line, keep alive the rumor that the beauty which was once lost has been regained. So there is a sense in which all of you are beautiful and it is a beauty that is in you uh, because Christ has put himself to you, which is very different, I would suggest to you, than America's next top model, which is really just about show about making beautiful women cry. <laughs> so, you know, we just have to think about that, okay? We just have to think about that. So what would it mean to keep the rumor alive? Well, it would be to get out of the way and extol the good things and to be merciful and give a good witness and to care for people and uh, to live beautifully. I don't know, uh, you know, I don't know where we're going exactly. I doubt that, um, I doubt that any of us, and, and Pastor Nelson will teach some and Pastor Gainig, I doubt that any of us will give you some sort of Aristotelian definition of uh, you know, beauty or, or sort of run with Augustine as, as you know, beauty as harmony and symmetric, symmetry and proportion, you know, uh, very mathematical. And you can't say enough good things about mathematics, as we all know. However, um, you know, that we, whether we would go there or not is, is a different question. I don't know that it helps to define beauty and then figure out if we can see it. I think it's perhaps much more interesting for us um, as you loop out a women's Bible study and you sort of gaze across what's there and you absorb that in a way that you're different than you were if you hadn't seen it. And I don't even mean for beauty in this case to be an apologetic. So we say to people, isn't the world a beautiful place or isn't this a beautiful day or isn't this a beautiful person? Even though across cultures, there are regularly have been things um, that have been accepted as beauty. Did you ever, did any of you ever see the thing by John Cleese, the Monty Python guy on beauty, who's four, four things? Where basically he, it's, a, it's, an old, it's an old part of a trick, but it's actually true. <clears throat> if you take what's, what it recognizes as the great pieces of art, east and west, 
there actually is a symmetry to the body. Do you know this? There's a symmetry to the body, to faces and to bodies. So your eyes are set so far from your nose, and your nose is in such proportion to your mouth, and your forearm is in proportion to your broader arm, and your arms are in proportion. If you take the great works of art recognized across cultures, they figured this out um, roughly around Da Vinci's time, that in each culture, human beings recognize as beautiful things in exactly the same proportion. This is a little interesting thing. John Cleese did a goofy thing on this. It was four parts of a thing on the Discovery Channel or something. Maybe you should watch it sometime. I'm, I'm not sure that uh, that's exactly what we're after, although it's very interesting to know. And I'm not even sure that um, you know, what I would try to argue is what I saw yesterday driving out of the Arboretum is a thing that would push somebody toward God. It might or it might not. But I will say this, knowing what we know, knowing that we were born in Eden, and knowing that the new heaven, the new Eden, is a tangible place. There is a great encouragement, a consolation, a healing, a gift, a Christedness, if you will, an incarnational aspect, a sacramental understanding of the world in which we live. It actually matters what we see and what we touch, what we smell and what we taste. And that's not lost on the Lord. He doesn't call you here just to think about things. He actually feeds you and uh, touches you and splashes you. And you remember, you know, even though you know, some of you have an aversion to incense, you remember in Exodus there's, there is a recipe for incense that the priests are supposed to make and burn all the time in the tabernacle. So when people smell it, they go, I'm in church. And you remember you're forbidden. If you make that incense up and burn it at home, you're cast out of the people of Israel. It's virtually a death penalty. So the Lord understood in giving things in a sensory, tactile, tangible, sacramental, incarnational way that he was giving you a glimpse of the foretaste of the feast to come. So I'm not necessarily trying to make an argument from today's a beautiful day, therefore there's a God. Somebody else might want to do that. I'm much more interested in you in saying, we know that there's a beautiful God, and how can that beautiful God be expressed in what we do here, and then particularly, and not just go back over the last couple of years of Bible study, in community and in gratitude as we live together as the body of Christ. So that's what I'm aiming at, and I don't even know um, exactly what will happen, especially because we're going to mix it up a little bit, so we'll see. You okay still? Make sense? All right, I tell you what, um, open your Bible up to Psalm 90. Now, I had my, my real Bible that the pages are falling out in my car yesterday for the women's thing, and then I, then I gave my car away. Any of you who have kids old enough to drive, you realize that you no longer have a car as soon as they turn. So my Bible is somewhere else, so I'm with my backup Bible here. So who knows what's going to happen, but uh, let's see. Just, I just want to read a couple of, uh, I just want to read a couple of verses. In the morning, uh, when I read Psalms, I read them out of the New English Bible because it's beautiful. The translation isn't always best. You can't buy this anywhere. You have to eBay it or find it in a bookstore, you know. Uh, but the translations are beautiful, but not always as accurate as, they, as you might want, but they are astoundingly beautiful. So now just kind of let this sink in, okay? And you know this. This is a famous Psalm, Psalm 90. This was for Isaac Watts, our God, our help in ages past. 
regularly on people's deathbeds. They want to hear this psalm. This is a psalm that's known well to the church. Just sort of let this pour into you. Psalm 90, Lord, you've been our refuge from generation to generation. Before the mountains were brought forth, or earth or world were born in travail. From age to age, everlasting thou art. Thou turnest man back into dust. Turn back, thou sayest, you sons of men. For in thy sight a thousand years are as yesterday. A night watch passes, and thou hast cut them off. They are like a dream at daybreak. They fade like grass, which springs up with the morning, but when evening comes is parched and withered. So we are brought to an end by thy anger and silenced by thy wrath. Thou dost lay bare our iniquities before thee and our lusts in the full light of thy presence. All our days go by under the shadow of thy wrath. Our years die away like a murmur Seventy years is the span of our life, eighty of our strength holds. The hurrying years are labor and sorrow, so quickly they pass and they're forgotten. Who feels the power of thy anger? Who feels thy wrath like those that fear thee? Teach us to order our days rightly, that we may enter the gate of wisdom. How long, O Lord, relent and take pity on thy servants? Satisfy us with thy love when morning breaks, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Repay us days of gladness for all our days of suffering. For the years thou hast humbled us. Show thy servants thy deeds and their children thy majesty. May all delightful things be ours, O Lord our God. Establish firmly all we do or more literally, if you've got a King James Version, let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. Establish thou the work of our hands, yea, Lord, establish thou it. Now that is just a human life. That's just life as you know it. There's the Lord, and then that, there's our troubles, and our deaths, and then there is the Lord. And that's a very common pattern in the psalm. There is, uh, there is the way that we are engaged even in the suffering of our lives. I've been struck by um, two recent friends who've been ill and, and died uh, at the lack of complaint in their lives. And then um, I asked one, uh, well, I, you, you can't sort of ask a man, why don't you complain? That wouldn't be a pastoral thing to do. But you, you can say, uh, of course, what I really wanted to know is, I was stunned by this because my own personal bias is that we live in a culture of complaint and that most conversation that we make is in some way based on uh, a difficult evaluation of other people and other things. And regularly, I, I just ch I challenge you to go through this week and measure the percentage of conversations that you have which are simply complaint about other things and especially about other people. So I was struck by these two, two men um, who had been uh, grievously ill and then not complain. And, and I couldn't really ask, it wasn't delicate to ask, just sort of, you know, what's up with that? 
But I did say, how, how, do you, how do you make it through? And then one of them said to me, you, you read the Psalms and you take your rage out on God. That's a startling thing to say for someone who believes in God, that you'd rage against him. But if you are raging against the Lord, like the psalmist does here, you spend it on the Lord so that it's not spent on your family and friends, which just absolutely positively must be the right answer. It makes sense of these psalms uh, where people say, well, you're the Lord, but my life is hell. And couldn't you be the Lord for me once again? And you see, beauty is one of the ways that the Lord is Lord for us once again. I presume, I don't know exactly where we're going, but I presume that we will speak of beauty as comfort. A few years ago, I started to grow roses, uh, not because I have a particular green thumb, but as defense against evil. The beauty of a rose in touch and smell, in sight, and in waking up every day is, is defense against evil. So I think beauty is um, contra to, you know, Pastor Gainig's young friend who has much to learn yet. Beauty is, in its most practical sense, the delivery of God upon us from all things that might hurt us. And I think that's what's in the psalmist here. You read this word, noam, it's right at the top of the page there under number two. Uh, pleasure or pleasantness or delight or beauty or kindness or favor. It's always fun when you read Hebrew uh, or Greek when the words, you can't sort of pull the words apart from each other. It's a bit Western to try to, you know, pull the words apart from each other so that they can only mean one thing. One of the beautiful things about the text is when you get four or five options and then you have to see which is dominant and what's the next thing that can be done. It, it comes, you remember the Hebrew text then was later translated. The Hebrew Old Testament was later translated into Greek, into the Septuagint. And it was always interesting then to learn what word they used. And you see they, there they use um, lamprotes, which you recognize if you just cut the last end off. You were, that's where we get the English word lamp, right? There it is, L-A-M-P, boom. You can all read Greek. I don't know why Burkholz is studying so hard. So, uh, you know, this is just right there. So it came in as brilliance or brightness or radiance or splendor or sweetness. Now here's a really interesting thing. In scriptures, and now, see, the thing is, as soon as you say these things, as soon as you say pleasure or brightness or beauty, my guess is that you stop thinking tangibly almost immediately, that you are Plato's sons and daughters, that you belong to Western tradition. So immediately you'd be think of sort of spiritual floaty things, right? It's kind of up there somewhere and not down here. That's a very Greek way of thinking, and we're Greeks. We're Western, we're Greek. That's who we are. We're Greek, we dance. Cheeseburger, oh sorry. Okay, so, all right, so you know, we're Greek in our thinking, so we have this body-mind split, body-spirit. You remember Plato? Plato says, you know, here's a lectern, but somewhere in heaven, you remember this from your first philosophy class, there's the idea of a lectern. This is just a poor imitation. The real thing is up there. Well, of course, the incarnation is completely opposite. Boom, comes to earth. 
and the most beautiful thing is right in front of your eyes. That's the way it is for the Hebrews. The Hebrews are earthy. They're material. You know, how do you get saved? You splash in water. How do you get forgiven? You kill things and cut them up and burn them, you know? You know, how do you, how do you get rid of problems? You, you slay people and send them out. You know, this is this marvelous, you know, affirmation of human beings. Okay, so this is the technical word. It's weird. Beauty is the technical word for the fire that burns on the altar. That's really, really cool for a bunch of reasons. One is, were you guys who were at Steve Chester's house? I mean, have you ever seen a fire like that without the department coming? No. I mean, come on now. We remember guys in my group taking bets on whether the tree was going to go. I bet that tree is going to dry out and catch on fire, and then what are we going to do? And we say, well, that's Steve's problem. So, you know, I mean, but, but you look at this fire, you know, it's this gorgeous, it's this gorgeous thing, and then it reduces down, and it's gorgeous again. And you say, you know, how does that? Well, beauty is the technical word for the fire on the altar. Now, you also know that the fire on the altar is not just the fire, that Yahweh is in the fire. You remember the famous, famous story where the prophet, you know, they have the competition about who's gonna, who's, whose stuff is going to burn up on the altar? And the prophets of Baal are cutting themselves and yelling, and Elijah's saying, ooh, I guess he must, your, your gods must be asleep, and then whoosh, down comes Yahweh and devours everything. And I've given you a couple of uh, things here. You can look in Judges where it says that the angel is in the flame. And the thing is, the angel is never far from Yahweh himself, and sometimes is Yahweh. Or Yahweh himself is a devouring flame, Exodus 24, or the burning bush, Exodus 3. Remember, I don't know if you women who were here for Fridays a couple of years ago, I think I might have given it in here too, but there's a famous icon of the burning bush where Moses is face down, and Jesus is in the fire. Jesus is the burning bush. Okay, so beauty is this presence of God, a tangible presence. It's mysterious, it's hot, it's spooky, it's inviting, it's curious, it lights the way, it helps, it can hurt. Crazy, okay? So I wonder if you can read this psalm uh, in this way. All right, the, the first couple of verses, you know, this confident gratitude. Just look, just Psalm 90, just look at this. Lord, you've been our refuge from generation to generation. Before the mountains were brought forth, tangible stuff, where the earth and world were born in travail from age to everlasting age, you are God. So you have this great gratitude for you're God and you've stood by us and you created us and we belong to you. You get two verses of we know who you are, and then you get about 10 verses of, and we know who we are too. Life is really pretty difficult. Just kind of read through this. You turn us back to dust. I think with my own brother's death, I, could, I best came to grips on it on the day when I could say to myself, it was the Lord himself who killed my brother. And then I had to kind of work back from that. And when I could say that, that nothing happened outside the Lord's hands, then uh, finally you sort of come to grips with that the Lord manages your life. When you can say that it is the Lord who slays you, and he does that for your good. Now you have to get all the way to the end of the psalm for that. Then you begin to understand that the Lord is actually the Lord who looks after you age after age. Okay? So the Lord turns you back to dust. Turn back, he says to you, you sons of men. Go ahead and die. Go back to dust. 
And in your sight, a thousand years are as yesterday. So, you know, we, we're troubled. People die. We're troubled. And it's sad. And it seems long. But the reality is, you know, they did a study a few years ago that, um, on stress where they said the kind of stress that kills people, the kind of stress that really binds people up where they have heart attacks and drop dead, is stress that doesn't have an end point. In reality, you know, when people die, when people die around us, the Lord, one of the blessings of the Lord is he gives you an end point. And the end point is your own death. You will see people again, and that makes the stress, stress and difficulty of that tolerable. Get a calendar, tick it off. Your time is going to be 70 years or 80 years if you're lucky. You know, work out, work out the difference. 80 minus your years now. I've got 30 years left if I'm lucky before I see my father again, before I see my brother again, grandparents. You see, that's a, sort of, that's a, that's a blessing because that's, that, it puts a terminus on your stress. It puts an end point. It makes it dealable. And you visit them every week when you come to the altar. Angels, archangels, all the company of heaven. There's nothing more beautiful than coming to the altar and knowing that they're doing the same thing you're doing. It, it allows you to get through your day. And then you go outside and you go, this is, really is a good day. Everything's been forgiven and everything is well and they're fine and I'm fine and you're fine and here we go. I wonder what the Lord's got cooking. See, that's, that's beauty. So uh, the Lord kills you. A night watch passes, and you cut them off. They're like a dream at daybreak. They fade like grass. The Hebrews, you know, they like to say it over and over and over again, right? So we are brought to an end by your anger, and we're silenced by your wrath. You lay our iniquities bare before you. All our lusts are full, are in full light in your presence. Our days go by under the shadow of wrath. Our years die away in a murmur. Seventy years, eighty if we're lucky. The hurrying of labor and sorrow, time passes too quickly. We feel anger, we feel wrath, okay? Then 12 finally starts to come out of it. Teach us to order our days that we may enter the gate of wisdom. Now this is just, I just, you know, here's the thing. If God is beauty, now I'm skipping ahead, I'm stealing from Aquinas, but I believe this, God is beauty, okay? God is also wisdom. God is also love. And you see how the th these things get put together. I'm not trying to give you attributes that describe God. I'm trying to ex describe the experience of being encountered by God. God is wisdom. God is beauty. God is love. And when you tug one, you tug the others along. This is great stuff. Teach us to order our days, right? To live within your boundaries, within your ways within your bidding, within your Eden, within your presence, at your altar where your fire burns hot and that fire is beautiful. Teach us to do that, that we may enter the gate of wisdom. How long, O oh Lord, relent, take pity on us. Okay, we're here, we'll play. It's funny, you people come to the altar this morning, they're crying and people aren't taking the supper and they are taking the supper and you know they've, they've been troubled and sometimes we know they're troubled and we see what it is and ah, this is the place for relief. Relent, take pity on us, satisfy us with your love when the morning breaks, that we may sing for joy. Now, you remember, remember, joy comes in the morning. The morning is typically a time, the Psalms regularly talk about how, how you struggle through the night, you don't sleep, you toss and turn, your soul wastes away, and then joy comes in the morning. There's something beautiful about the way the sun rises. There's, be there's beauty in the start of a new day. There's possibility, there's hope, there's community, there's love. There's usefulness. 
there's encouragement, there's consolation. It is a rough night, okay? The darkness of the soul. It was rough time. But here we come through now. Satisfy us. What's the only thing that satisfies? If you love me, if God loves me, that we may sing of her joy and be glad all our days. Being loved, I am able to love. Being loved, I indulge in joy. Being loved, I rejoice. Being gifted, I'm saved. Straighten it out. Repay us. Turn it upside down. Repay our days of suffering with days of gladness. We suffered for a lot of years. Give us a lot of years of good now. Show yourself, not just to me, but also to my children. Let the beauty of the Lord, O oh God, be upon us. Let the beauty of your hand work its work with me. So I tried to give you a couple of ways to read this. This is point number three. You start in confident gratitude. You're the one, Lord. And despite the evil challenges of life that mark servants, you know what? Just because you're in the church doesn't mean you're problem-free. In fact, you probably get more problems. Satan would leave you alone if you were just doing something else right now. Despite the challenges for life, the challenges of life, we beg for mercy and deliverance in piety and devotion. That's what you're doing here. That was yesterday, the rhythms of, of a Christian life, right? Or try this. God who created us from nothing continues to enter our creation. The beauty, the presence, the fire visibly and tangibly. You don't have to count on your good ideas. He's there right now. Despite our weariness, despite our darkness, despite our guilt and shame. You know what, it, I, I, don't know if that, I don't know if you tremble a bit, but when I read the text that says, lay bare all my iniquities, all my lusts in your presence, that's not a particularly comfortable thought for me. And I suspect it's not a comfortable thought for you. Even though I know that the Lord knows everything about me, you know, the engagement of being laid bare is not a pleasant prospect, okay? But despite knowing all that, he nevertheless loves me, he draws me to joy, he draws me to beauty, and I'm baptized, I belong to him. So on my best days, I remember that when I'm laid bare, when he looks at me, he only sees Christ. These, the two young pastors, um, a week when I was gone, did the most brilliant thing with the kids downstairs uh, for the early Eucharistic classes. They took a mirror, they hid it from the kids. The kids were sitting there and they had a mirror like this. Then they let them come up one by one and have a look in the mirror and see what they'd see. And they taped a crucifix to the mirror. They'd fixed a crucifix to it. So when the kids look in the mirror, what they saw was Christ crucified. Oh, that's brilliant. So when people look at themselves, what they see Christ crucified. That's the gospel. Or, though human beings die, if you will, they don't die out. We got people all around us who are dying, that's troublesome, but they don't die out. Redeemed by the incarnational presence of God, their creator, who loves having the best possible use of them, and now I'll just say it, in a stable, ordered, non-chaotic, sacramental, incarnational, beautiful world. So it does actually matter, really, what we do inside next door. It does actually matter how we, what we do here. It matters how we sing, it matters how we play, it matters how we preach, it matters how we baptize, it matters how we greet each other. It matters, it matters, it matters, because there are beautiful ways to engage each other, and there are non-beautiful ways, and you don't need some neoplatonic definition of beauty to know what those are, because at the end of the day, it is God who is beauty, and beauty is God. 
And so this is nothing else than Luther saying, we're little Christ to each other. This is the most practical of all things. Visible salvation is celebrated tangibly, visibly, sacramentally, sacramentally, beautifully, as, and now be a Hebrew, not a Greek, spiritual and physical together, or human and divine together. It's all bundled together so that we can sing the Lord's praises. Or the same one who called light out of darkness is himself light, lighting our way, shining on his people, even a flaming torch far away. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path, right? And then um, put this away for later, if you will. The word, uh, when the Hebrew comes into Greek, the word beauty actually becomes a name for evangelists, for apostles, for messengers. And you know this, how beautiful are, feet, are the feet of those who bear the gospel, right? This word beauty actually comes because in the pastor, not because of the pastor, but because he bears Christ or bears Yahweh, the presence of God is delivered. And that, frankly, is the same for all of you. When you enter the room, you should make the room more beautiful because what you bear is the tangible presence of Christ. You don't have an option not to make it not beautiful. It's not your option. You are baptized, you bear the body and blood, you bear the death of Jesus in you. That means you bear the beauty of Jesus. The full range of this will be if you can look on the cross and see the body and see that that's beautiful. I'm convinced that part of our aversion to bodies on crosses is not simply because we want to plead the resurrection. It is because we find that unbeautiful. And if we can get all the way to the point where the crucifix is the most beautiful thing, then you see people like those whom Mother Teresa served, who are the worst of the worst, whose flesh is rotting, who are starving to death, who are horribly disfigured, those people too become beautiful, and that's the full stretch. When you can begin to see in people whom the world would call ugly the beauty of Christ, then Christ lights the world, then we're on the way. See? So this is the most practical of all things. Um, I need to stop there. We can chat a little bit more if you want next time. I want to give you homework, though. Um, so we're going to start at point number four next week, but I want to give you homework. Did you give them the icon? <clears throat> this is, uh, as you can see, an icon of the Transfiguration. It's extraordinarily famous, <clears throat> and um, it is recognized usually as a consummate expression of beauty. Now, if you go back and read, I, and I've given you the texts in your, the texts are written down, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, texts are written down. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to read the Transfiguration text, and I want you to look at this, okay? And I want you to read in the Transfiguration text for what happens to them. Ask yourself what they see. Ask yourself how they respond to that. Ask yourself how's the, how the person who wrote this icon Icons are written, and then they're read. So somebody wrote this icon, and it's meant for you to read this icon. So you read this icon through the week. 
read the text and read the icon and see how they work together. Just one clue, which um, this is a thing where being Western should help, and it often uh, unfortunately hurts. Whenever people, we talk about reading an icon, or, or often when we talk about tangible, visible things, we talk about meditating on things, immediately um, two things happen. One is we, we co-opt an Eastern definition of meditation, where the point is um, to empty ourselves. In the East, meditation empties. In the West, and in the Christian tradition, meditation fills. Okay, so you're not concerned that when you look at this, you're not trying to make your mind go blank when you look at this. That's an Eastern Hindu way. That's foreign to us. That's not us. We're not trying to empty ourselves. We're trying to fill ourselves. So what does the icon say as you read it? The other thing is, is, and this is horribly important, it's not subjective. No more than the Bible is subjective. This is not a thing about looking at this and saying, hey, what comes to me? What does this make me think about? That's not it. I mean, that's not, that's not what an icon is. You're meant to look through an icon to see God. It doesn't stop here. It's not like you look at this and then it bounces back and says, what about you? That is the most, that is the most you know, self-interested, modernist, postmodern way of doing things, and it's completely wrong. When you look at an icon, you're meant to look through the icon to see Christ, just the way when you read scripture, you look through the text to see Christ, okay? This is used very much like a text, so use this. Just, just I, I'm not, I don't want to pre-program you except to say that. Let your mind be filled with whatever comes, but let your mind be guided by the writing and the icon and the writing and the text, see what happens to you. We'll come back and talk about that, and then we should talk about why that's beautiful or why it's not. There's some things that are not beautiful, for example, in this, like, that they're face down and kind of, duh, you know, okay. But there are some things that are beautiful too. We need to talk about that and see if we can come to all of them, okay? So I'll see you next week. Let's pray. We got some folks, child for baptism. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, see you next week. Have fun.